Volume 2, Book 6, Chapters 21 through 30 of The Life of Apollonius of Tyana. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Life of Apollonius of Tyana by Flavius Philostratus. Translated by F. C. Coneybear. Volume 2, Book 6. Chapter 21. Let us, said Thespasion, tackle the subject, for it is one very suitable to men, whether they are wise or not. But lest we should drag in the opinions of Indians, and so confuse our discussion, and go off without having formed any conclusions, do you first impart to us the views held by the Indians concerning justice, for you probably examined their views on the spot. And if their opinion is proved to be correct, we will adopt it, but if we have something wiser to put in its place, you must adopt our view, for that too is plain justice. Said Apollonius, Your plan is excellent and most satisfactory to me. So do you listen to the conversation which I held there. For I related to them how I had once been the captain of a large ship, in the period when my soul was in command of another body, and I thought myself extremely just because, when robbers offered me a reward, if I would betray my ship by running it into roads where they were going to lie in wait for it, in order to seize the cargo, I agreed and made the promise just to save them from attacking us, but intending to slip by them and get beyond the place agreed upon. Vespesion said, And did the Indians agree that this was justice? No, they laughed at the idea he replied, for they said that justice was something more than not being unjust. It was very sensible, said the other, of the Indians to reject such a view, for good sense is something more than not entertaining nonsense, just as courage is something more than not running away from the ranks. And so temperance is something more than the avoidance of adultery, and no one reserves his praise for a man who has simply shown himself to be not bad. For, because a thing, no matter what, is equidistant between praise and punishment, it is not on that account to be reckoned off-hand to be virtue. How then, O Thespesion, said Apollonius, are we to crown the just man, and for what actions? Could you have discussed justice more completely and more opportunely? said the other, than when the sovereign of so large and so flourishing a country intervened in your philosophic discussion of the art of kingship, a thing intimately connected with justice? If it had been Freotes, said Abelonius, who turned up on that occasion, you might rightly blame me for not gravely discussing the subject of justice in his presence. But you know from the account which I gave of him yesterday, that the man is a drunkard and an enemy of all philosophy. What need, therefore, was there to inflict on him the trouble? Why should we try to win credit for ourselves in the presence of a Sybarite who thinks of nothing but his own pleasures? But inasmuch as it is incumbent upon wise men like ourselves to explore and trace out justice, more so than on kings and generals, let us proceed to examine the absolutely just man. For, though I thought myself just in the affair of the ship, 
and thought others just too, because they did not practice injustice, you deny that this in itself constitutes them just or worthy of honor. And rightly so, said the other, for whoever heard of a decree being drafted by Athenians or Lacedaemonians in favor of crowning so-and-so, because he is not a libertine, or of granting the freedom of a city to so-and-so, because the temples have not been robbed by him. Who then is the just man, and what are his actions? For neither did I hear of any one being crowned merely for his justice, nor of a decree being proposed over a just man to the effect that so-and-so shall be crowned, because such and such actions of his show him to be just. For anyone who considers the fate of Palamedes in Troy, or of Socrates in Athens, will discover that even justice is not sure of success among men, for assuredly these men suffered most unjustly, being themselves most just. Still, they at least were put to death on the score of acts of injustice imputed to them, and the verdict was a distortion of the truth, whereas in the case of Aristides, the son of Lysimachus, it was very justice that was the undoing of him, for he, in spite of his integrity, was banished merely because of his reputation for this very virtue. And I am sure that justice will appear in a very ridiculous light, for having been appointed by Zeus, and by the fates to prevent men from being unjust to one another, she has never been able to defend herself against injustice. And the history of Aristides is sufficient to me to show the difference between one who is not unjust, and one who is really just. For, tell me, is not this the same Aristides, of whom your Hellenic compatriots, when they come here, tell us that he undertook a voyage to the islands to fix the tribute of the allies, and after settling it on a fair basis, returned again to his country, still wearing the same cloak in which he left it? It is he, answered Apollonius, who made the love of poverty once to flourish. Now, said the other, let us suppose that there were at Athens two public orators passing an encomium upon Aristides, just after he had returned from the allies. One of them proposes that he shall be crowned, because he has come back again without enriching himself or amassing any fortune. But the poorest of the Athenians, poorer than he was before, and the other orator, we will suppose, drafts his motion somewhat as follows. Whereas Aristides has fixed the tribute of the allies according to their ability to pay, and not in excess of the resources of their respective countries, and whereas he has endeavored to keep them loyal to the Athenians, and to see that they shall feel it no grievance to pay upon this scale, it is hereby resolved to crown him for justice. Do you not suppose that Aristides would himself have opposed the first of these resolutions, as an indignity to his entire life, seeing that it only honored him for not doing injustice, whereas he might perhaps have supported the other resolution as a fair attempt to express his attentions and policy? For I imagine it was with an eye to the interest of Athenians, and subject stakes alike, that he took care to fix the tribute on a fair and moderate basis, and in fact, 
His wisdom in this matter was conclusively proved after his death. For when the Athenians exceeded his valuations and imposed heavier tributes upon the islands, their naval supremacy at once went to pieces, though it, more than anything else, had made them formidable. On the other hand, the prowess of the Lacedaemonians passed on to the sea itself, and nothing was left of Athenian supremacy, for the whole of the subject states rushed into revolution and made good their escape. It follows, then, O Apollonius, that, rightly judged, it is not the man who abstains from injustice that is just, but the man who himself does what is just, and also influences others not to be unjust. And from such justice as his, there will spring up a crop of other virtues, especially those of the law court and of the legislative chamber. For such a man as he will make a much fairer judge than people who take their oaths upon the dissected parts of victims, and his legislation will be similar to that of Solon and of Lycurgus. For assuredly, these great legislators were inspired by justice to undertake their work. Chapter 22 Such, according to Damis, was the discussion held by them with regard to the just man, and Apollonius, he says, assented to their argument, for he always agreed with what was reasonably put. They also had a philosophic talk about the soul, proving its immortality, and about nature, along much the same lines which Plato follows in his Timaeus. And after some further remarks and discussions of the laws of the Hellens, Apollonius said, For myself, I have come all this way to see yourselves, and visit the springs of the Nile. For a person who only comes as far as Egypt may be excused if he ignores the latter, but if he advances as far as Ethiopia, as I have done, he will be rightly reproached if he neglects to visit them, and to draw, as it were, from their well-springs some arguments of his own. Farewell, then, said the other, and pray to the springs for whatever you desire, for they are divine. But I imagine you will take as your guide Timasion, who formerly lived at Neuratus, but is now at Memphis. For he is well acquainted with the springs of the Nile, and he is not so impure as to stand in need of further lustrations. But as for you, O Nilus, we would like to have a talk to you by ourselves. The meaning of this sally was clear enough to Apollonius for he well understood their annoyance at Nilus's preference for himself, but to give them an opportunity of speaking to him apart, he left them to prepare and pack up for his journey, for he meant to start at daybreak. And after a little time Nilus returned, but did not tell them anything of what they had said to him, though he laughed a good deal to himself. And no one asked him what he was laughing about, but they respected his secret. Chapter 23 They then took their supper, and after a discussion of certain trifles, they laid them down to sleep where they were. But at daybreak they said goodbye to the naked sages, and started off along the road which leads to the mountains, keeping the Nile on their right side. And they saw the following spectacles deserving of notice. The Catadupi are mountains formed of good soil, about the same size as the hill of the Lydians called Timolus, 
and from them the Nile flows rapidly down, washing with it the soil of which it creates Egypt. But the roar of the stream as it breaks down in a cataract from the mountains and hurls itself noisily into the Nile is terrible and intolerable to the ears, and many of those who have approached it too close have returned with the loss of their hearing. Chapter 24 Apollonius, however, and his party pushed on till they saw some round-shaped hills covered with trees, and leaves and bark and gum, of which the Ethiopians regard as of great value. And they also saw lions close to the path, and leopards, and other such wild animals. But they were not attacked by any of them, for they fled from them in haste, as if they were scared at the sight of men. And they also saw stags and gazelles, and ostriches and asses, the latter in great numbers, and also many wild bulls and ox-goats, so called, the former of these two animals being a mixture of the stag and the ox, that latter of the creatures from which its name is taken. They found, moreover, on the road, the bones and half-eaten carcasses of these, for the lions, when they have gorged themselves with fresh prey, care little of what is left over of it, because, I think, they feel sure of eating fresh quarry whenever they want it. Chapter 25 It is here that the nomad Ethiopians live in a sort of colony upon wagons, and not far from them the elephant hunters, who cut up these animals and sell the flesh, and are accordingly called by a name which signifies the selling of elephants and the Nasamones, and the man-eaters, and the pygmies, and the shadow-footed people are also tribes of Ethiopia, and they extend as far as the Ethiopian ocean, which no mariners ever enter except castaways who do so against their will. Chapter 26 As our company were discussing these animals and talking learnedly about the food which nature supplies in their different cases, they heard a sound as of thunder, not a crashing sound, but of thunder as it is when it is still hollow and concealed in the cloud. And Timasion said, A cataract is at hand, gentlemen, the last for those who are descending the river, but the first to meet you on your way up. And after they had advanced about ten stades, he says that they saw a river discharging itself from the hillside quite as big as the Marsyas and the Meander, at their first confluence. And he says that after they had put up a prayer to the Nile, they went on till they no longer saw any animals at all, for the latter are naturally afraid of noise, and therefore live by calm waters rather than by those which rush headlong with a noise. And after fifteen stades they heard another cataract, which this time was horrible and unbearable to the senses for it was twice as loud as the first one, and it fell from much higher mountains. And Damis relates that his own ears and those of one of his companions were so stunned by the noise that he himself turned back and besought Apollonius not to go any further. However, he, along with Timasion and Nilus, boldly pressed on to the third cataract, of which he made the following report on his return. Peaks there overhang the Nile, at the most eight stades in height, 
but the eminence faces the mountains namely a beetling brow of rocks mysteriously cut away as if in a quarry and the fountains of the nile cling to the edge of the mountain till they overbalance and fall on to the rocky eminence from which they pour into the nile as an expanse of whitening billows but the effect produced upon the senses by this cataract which is many times greater than the earlier ones and the echo which leaps up therefrom against the mountains render it impossible to hear what your companions tell you about the river but the further road which leads up to the first springs of the river was impracticable they tell us and impossible to think of for they tell many stories of the demons which haunt it stories similar to those which pindar in his wisdom puts into verse about the demon whom he sets over these springs to preserve the due proportions of the nile chapter twenty seven after passing the cataracts they halted in a village of the ethiopians of no great size and they were dining towards the evening mingling in their conversation the grave with the gay when all on a sudden they heard the woman of the village screaming and calling to one another to join in the pursuit and catch the thing and they also summoned their husbands to help them in the matter and the latter caught up sticks and stones and anything which came handy and called upon one another to avenge the insult to their wives and it appears that for ten months the ghost of a satyr had been haunting the village who was mad after the woman and was said to have killed two of them to whom he was supposed to be specially attached the companions then of apollonius were frightened out of their wits till apollonius said you need not be afraid for it is only a satyr that is running amuck here yes by zeus said nilus it's the one that we naked sages have found insulting us for a long time past and we could never stop his jumps and leaps but said apollonius i have a remedy against these hell-hounds which midas is said once to have employed for midas himself had some of the blood of the satyrs in his veins as was clear from the shape of his ears and a satyr once trespassing on his kinship with midas made merry at the expense of his ears not only singing about them but piping about them well midas i understand had heard from his mother that when satyr is overcome by wine he falls asleep and at such times comes to his senses and will make friends with you so he mixed wine which he had in his palace in a fountain and let the satyr get at it and the latter drank it up and was overcome and to show that the story is true let us go to the headman of the village and if the villagers have any wine we will mix it with water for the satyr and he will share the fate of midas's satyr they thought it a good plan so he poured four egyptian jars of wine into the trough out of which the village cattle drank and then called the satyr by means of some secret rebuke or threat and though as yet the latter was not visible the wine sensibly diminished as if it was being drunk up and when it was quite finished apollonius said let us drink the satyr's health for he is fast asleep and with these words he led the villagers to the cave of the nymphs 
which was not quite a furlong away from the village, and he showed them the satyr lying fast asleep in it, but told them not to hit him or abuse him. He said, For his nonsense is stopped forever. Such was this exploit of Apollonius, and by heavens we may call it not an incidental work in passing, but a masterwork of his passing by. And if you read the sage's epistle, in which he wrote to an insolent young man, that he had sobered even a satyr demon in Ethiopia, you will perforce call to mind the above story. But we must not disbelieve that satyrs both exist and are susceptible to the passion of love. For I knew a youth of my own age in Lemnos, whose mother was said to be visited by a satyr, as he well might to judge by this story, for he was represented as wearing on his back a fawn-skin that exactly fitted him, the front paws of which were drawn around his neck and fastened over his chest. But I must not go further into this subject, but, anyhow, credit is due as much to experience of facts as it is to myself. Chapter 28 When he had come down from Ethiopia, the breach with Euphrates grew wider and wider, especially on account of daily disputes and discussions, though he left them to many Bus and Nilus to conduct, and seldom himself attacked Euphrates, being much too busy with the training of Nilus. Chapter 29 After Titus had taken Jerusalem, and when the country all round was filled with corpses, the neighboring races offered him a crown, but he disclaimed any such honor to himself, saying that it was not he himself that had accomplished this exploit, but that he had merely lent his arms to God, who had so manifested his wrath. And Apollonius praised his action, for therein he displayed a great deal of judgment and understanding of things human and divine, and it showed great moderation on his part that he refused to be crowned because he had shed blood. Accordingly, Apollonius indicted to him a letter, which he sent by the hand of Damis, and of which the text was as follows. Apollonius sends greeting to Titus, the Roman general. Whereas you have refused to be proclaimed for success in war, and for shedding the blood of your enemies, I myself assign to you the crown of temperance and moderation, because you thoroughly understand what deeds really merit the crown. Farewell. Now Titus was overjoyed with this epistle, and replied, In my own behalf I thank you, no less than in behalf of my father, and I will not forget your kindness, for although I have captured Jerusalem, you have captured me. Chapter 30 And after Titus had been proclaimed autocrat in Rome, and rewarded with the meed of his valor, he went away to become the colleague in empire of his father. But he did not forget Apollonius, and thinking that even a short interview with him would be precious to himself, he besought him to come to Tarsus. And when he arrived, he embraced him, saying, my father has told me by letter everything in respect of which he consulted you, and lo, here is his letter, in which you are described as his benefactor, 
and the being to whom we owe all that we are. Now, though I am only just thirty years of age, I am held worthy of the same privileges to which my father only attained at the age of sixty. I am called to the throne and to rule, perhaps before I have learnt myself to obey, and I therefore dread lest I am undertaking a task beyond my powers. Thereupon Apollonius, after stroking his neck, for he had as stout a neck as any athlete in training, said, And who will you force so sturdy a bull-neck as yours under the yoke? He that from my youth up reared me as a calf, answered Titus, meaning his own father, and implying that he could only be controlled by the latter, who had accustomed him from childhood to obey himself. I am delighted, then, said Apollonius, in the first place to see you prepared to subordinate yourself to your father, whom, without being his natural children, so many are delighted to obey, and next to see you rendering to his court an homage in which others will associate yourself. When youth and age are paired in authority, is there any lyre or any flute that will produce so sweet a harmony and so nicely blended? For the qualities of old age will be associated with those of youth, with the result that old age will gain in strength and youth in discipline. End of Volume 2, Book 6, Chapters 21-30